Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John chapter 4. We'll look at verses 13 through 21 this morning. <clears throat> the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. Uh, we're in the getting toward the middle of a series now on um, kind of basic uh, characteristics of our church. It's a series introducing things like our vision and mission and uh, the things that we think are most important, things we think should characterize really every church, but uh, things, uh, things that we hope especially would characterize our church. And so um, <clears throat> the point of this is to give you um, something of a simple paradigm for, uh, for understanding our church, for understanding the gospel, the things that we think are most important, and so, um, uh, so that we can all kind of live together out of that. We have a kind of a touchstone that we can all refer to in terms of uh, the way that we think about uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. So uh, the first Sunday in this series, we talked about our basic confession. We talked about that in terms of um, we have a creed. We have something that we say that we believe, and it really is a Trinitarian creed, uh, primarily. Um, the God that we have, he's a unique God. There's no other God like him. And so our understanding of God, the fact that he has revealed himself to us, and the fact that he's particularly uh, chosen to relate to us through the person of his son. It's a Christ-centeredness that we have in our creed and our confession, right? So who it is that we're worshiping, who it is that we're together with. And then the second uh, week, last week, we looked at our basic calling and the fact that God uh, made us and he created us and he redeemed us and he calls us into communion with himself. Just to come, it's that simple, uh, just to come and be together with him and with each other. That's kind of the the main thing that we want to be about uh, being with this particular God in, uh, in the way that he's told us to be with him. So um, communion, calling, that kind of thing. And then uh, today we're going to talk about our basic conviction. And our basic conviction really is, um, is love. It's really simplified in the, and, and summarized in the word love. The word conviction, it really is accommodating to this concept for us, especially in this passage, because it sort of has three definitions. Uh, if you look it up, uh, the word conviction is, uh, first, it's a, it's a formal declaration that someone is guilty of an offense. And then second, that it's a, it's a firmly held belief. Right? A conviction is a firmly held belief. And then third, uh, you could say um, that it's, it's the quality of showing that one is convinced. If a man has conviction, it means he's convinced of what he believes. Right? So it's, uh, it's being guilty of an offense, it's having a belief, and it's living like you have that belief. That's what the word conviction means. So it really is helpful to us. It's perfect for our consideration of this text and for the topic of love as it is uh, our basic conviction. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, as always, we need your Spirit's help. If we're going to uh, read your word and hear it, to ponder it, and, um, and for it to have its effect in us, the only way that can happen is if your spirit is at work in us. So we pray for the fullest measure of your spirit, that he would come and uh, fill this time, fill our hearts and our minds and the words that are spoken, that, um, that he would draw us to you, Father, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the word love shows up quite a bit in uh, John's letters, uh, especially here in this particular passage. The world is meant to be characterized by that. The world is meant to be characterized by love. Um, uh, Jesus says in response to a lawyer's uh, question of him, teacher, what's, what's the greatest commandment? As you survey the entire Old Testament, what for them was the only scriptures they had, as you survey the Bible, What's the greatest thing that God commands us? What's the thing that he wants most for our lives? Uh, What does he want to characterize us? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to this, uh, this lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when most people, I think, in, um, in our culture, people who are familiar with Jesus, maybe not Christians, but, um, <clears throat> but people who think about Jesus, when they think about him, they probably think about him as a teacher, right? The things that he said, that's the important stuff that we can remember about Jesus. Absolutely, we should remember all that. Um, but they think about him as saying things like this, like these are the world-changing things that he said. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Do unto others, that kind of thing is uh, what characterizes in in people's minds, I think to a large degree in our society, uh, what Jesus is about. And he's giving this commandment, and uh, the Bible's full of commandments. The Bible's not only about commandments, but the commandment here that he sums up, that he he gives us as kind of the most important stuff that your life should be about, um, it's the way things are supposed to be. That's what he's saying. This is the way things are supposed to be. This is what God is like. This is what he wants from you. This is what's supposed to characterize your relationship with him and with each other. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's the way the world is supposed to be. That's what he's saying. And so uh, other New Testament writers, Paul, in a couple places, he sums up all the commandments, all the times where God says, you should do this. This is how things are supposed to be. He sums it up and he says, uh, they're summed up with this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says it a couple times in his letters, Romans 13 and also Galatians 5. The commandments are summed up in this word. If there's any commandment, it's summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, that's the way the world is supposed to be. <clears throat> and so Jesus talked about it a lot, uh, also recorded in John's gospel in, uh, in John uh, chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another, just as I have loved you. So he's, he's giving us something of a definition for what love is supposed to look like. This is the way things are supposed to be. You're supposed to love one another 
And that's going to look like what I'm doing, Jesus says. Uh, Just as I have loved you, you will imitate me in your love. That's how things are supposed to be. You will imitate me. And that reminds us of, uh, of the way that God talks. That's how God talks. When he says, you want to see how things are supposed to be? Just do what I do. Right? Be holy, for I am holy. Your holiness, your love is supposed to be a reflection of mine, is what God says. Uh, that Bill read it in our um, Old Testament reading from Leviticus 19. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then, then you get this, uh, this long section in that chapter of him kind of telling you, uh, these are what these commandments mean. This is how you should treat one another. And every single uh, little paragraph ends with the reminder, I'm the Lord. You know? So tying all of our behavior, all of the, the way that we're supposed to behave in relationship with one another, uh, tying that back to who he is, because we're supposed to be reflecting him. We're supposed to be imitating him, which is what Jesus ultimately says. As I have loved you, that's how you're supposed to love each other. So he says things like, uh, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then, um, in case you were wondering if that really only uh, includes people who are in close proximity to you or people that you share affinities with, people who are like you in your neighborhood or your community or whatever, um, it's not just your, your local geographical or affinity type neighbor, right? It's not just the people that you would associate with if you had the choice. It's strangers, too. He says, you shall treat the sojourner, right, the stranger who sojourns among you, as you treat the native, and you shall love him as yourself. You shall love him as yourself. So it's not just your own children you should love with, uh, as you would love yourself. It's everybody's children you should love. It's not just your own brother or sister or father or mother. It's, it's everybody in the world you're supposed to... It doesn't matter who they are. You're supposed to love them as you love yourself. That's what the world is supposed to be like, right? As, uh, as we would imitate God in his holiness, in his love, that means extending love to everyone. And uh, the word love, is again, it's one of those words that, boy, people mean a whole lot of things by it. Um, it's hard to kind of nail down a real definition that we can agree on, but, you know, places in the scriptures like the Ten Commandments give a shape to love. This is what it looks like to express your love in this relationship or in this relationship, right, or in this relationship, because relationships differ, and we don't treat everybody the same. Um, you, you treat your parents differently the way you treat your spouse, and, and your children treat you differently, and so there's, there's uh, different expressions given to love, but, um, uh, but love is supposed to characterize every single relationship, and uh, that's the way the world is meant to be. And here's a little bit from uh, when Paul gives his definition to uh, the word in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a wonderful chapter. We've probably all heard it at a wedding. But he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So that's a pretty good definition that we're given of like what love looks like when we're living in relationships the way that we're supposed to live, right? um, the way that God uh, intends for this world to be characterized by the, this, these kinds of things. But And our text says in verse 16, our our text for the sermon this morning, it says, God is love. 
That's what his being is. Right? God is love. Not just God loves, but God is love. That's because he's the triune God who created us. He calls us together uh, to reflect what he's like. He's like this because this is what his being is. Right? Three persons in one being living in, in perfect communion, perfect love relationships, uh, delighted mutual self-gift, right? The Father giving himself to the Son and the Son giving himself to the Father in the Spirit. So there's, um, it's, it's part of who God actually is. God is love. And so um, you could kind of go with a remix of what Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and substitute the word God for the word love, right? God is patient, and kind. That's who he is. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. That's who he is. So love is definitive of his very nature. It's, it's probably the most definitive thing about him, love. And uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, I like this quote from Karl Barth. You may have heard it before, but from his Church of Dogmatics, he says that the statements, God is and God loves, are synonymous. They explain and confirm one another. He is both the one who loves and the one who is loved, even though there were no creature for him to love and to love him in return. God loves, and the purpose of his being is to do this. To do so, he does not need any being distinct from his own as the object of his love. Thus, the love of God is free, majestic, eternal love. It's good for us to think about, just reflect on what it means that God is love. Saying that God is love means if there's anything in this world, there's love. Because God is love. If there's anything, there's love. The world was made by this God, and it was meant to be characterized by love that that, that he uh, demonstrates clearly for us. The truth is, though, that we have broken God's law. The way things are supposed to be, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We've broken it. We've just flat out failed to love like God loves. In our selfishness, it's kind of the root of our rebellion is our selfishness. We we break all the Ten Commandments. We break every commandment, either through, uh, through commission or omission, right? Commission is like the direct violation of something. You're not supposed to do this, and you do it anyway. Or omission is you're supposed to do this, but you don't do it. Um, in action. We break all the commandments in those ways. We're, we're proud, we're greedy, we're lustful, we're covetous, we're petty, we're spiteful people. And mostly, we don't even know that about ourselves because in our self-centeredness, we prefer rather to think really well of ourselves. Right? Um, we're, we're In our boastful, arrogant pride, we blind ourselves to the reality of what, what we really are like. The fact that we're selfish, the fact that we don't love we just don't believe that about ourselves because we don't want to. Sometimes we pretend to love. We pretend to love in order to get love. Right? I mean, I think this resonates with us. To get praise from others. 
to have them think well of us or to get self-esteem or just in order to imagine that God loves us or somebody else loves us or that we're lovable. We, We do things that look like love to get love. So we clean the kitchen and we help the kids with their homework or we do what our parents say or we give money to the poor, we serve, we, we work hard, hoping that someone will notice. Did you notice? I did this yesterday. I spent like an hour cleaning the stove. <laughs> and the first thing when Jerry walks into the kitchen is, did you notice? <laughs> Calling attention to it. Did I do that just, just for the sake of uh, getting love, getting praise, so that someone will notice, notice that, so that someone will reward me? I did. I do that all the time. If you're anything like me, you do it all the time. You don't even notice that you're doing it. Right? We love. We perform acts of love. We do things that look like love. We pretend to love in order to get love. But that's, that's not love. That's a cheap knockoff. That's gutted of anything really like love, resembling love. It's insecurity. It's insecurity to do that. It's, it's selfishness. It's fear-driven stuff. If I don't do this, if I don't love, if I'm not pulling my life together for the sake of other people, then uh, nobody's going to notice. Nobody's gonna, I'm going to be empty. I'm gonna be, my life will be meaning, meaningless if I, don't, uh, if I don't do something to earn a reward. People who dwell in that version of love, they don't know the love of God. We're so subtle about it, it's usually undetectable, but so much of what passes for love in this world is just counterfeit. That's just counterfeit stuff. And that's a deep, deep problem. And this world is a broken place because we're broken in this way. We really don't even know how to live in relationship with each other. Even the relationships that are supposed to be the closest, most lasting relationships, we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to love our spouses or our children. Usually we just fail to love entirely. So um, in our passage, verse 20, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So this is it's talking about self-deception, right? You're being a liar, you're being dishonest, right? With, with yourself. If you think that you can say, I love God, but you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Um, which is th- that kind of self-deception. The Bible talks about it a lot, which is why we talk about it a lot here at Ascension. It's kind of... Basic things we're always talking about. We need to stop being in denial all the time about the way that we deceive ourselves, the way that we're dishonest with ourselves when we um, talk about our, our faith. It's just dishonest to think, isn't God great? Isn't God wonderful? Without it making a difference in your life, without it make, with propelling you out in true love for your fellow human being. God's love summons us to love. His love that's coming toward us, it summons us to love everybody. But we cut it short before it even gets to us. That's where we're cutting it short. Not between 
by the time it reaches us and we reflect it out to somebody else, that's not where we're cutting it short. We're cutting it short before it even gets to us. If it got to us, it would have this effect. If, if we really knew God's love, it would have this effect on us. John Stott says the argument is plain and compelling. For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak, or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father. So, so we're a people, in, in response to this kind of reality, we're a people that, that the Spirit has convicted. A formal declaration has been made that we are guilty of a most serious offense we don't love as we should love. Considering the God who is, who made us, the God who created us for a relationship, to, to reflect what he is like, we don't love like we're supposed to love. And it's the Spirit's, actually, it's his good work. It's his gracious work. When you're being told, uh, when you're being convicted of your sin, of your failure to love, it's, it's God's good work in your life. That's one of the Spirit's, uh, it's like in his job description in the Scriptures, bringing us to this conviction of our sins, right? Grace, uh, it can feel quite excoriating before it's uplifting and encouraging and restorative. But we say, uh, we say as people who have been convicted by the Spirit, I am guilty. I'm guilty in my self-love, in my lack of true love. I'm what's wrong with the world. I'm the reason why this world's broken. We stop denying that, and we actually seek to recognize that in all of our relationships, in all the broken areas, in all of our relationships, we seek to recognize how my self-love is the problem here. Right? That's, our, uh, that's our conviction. It's a problem that we can't fix. We're going to live with this problem the rest of our lives in a lot of ways. Um, it's a problem we can't fix. We can't love ourselves into a, we can't, you know, do enough love, uh, doing, do enough loving actions. We can't love ourselves into a position of good standing in the judgment. Right? Um, but the gospel, which we're very much about here, uh, around here, says that, that God loves you nevertheless. Even though it's a problem you can't fix, a problem of your own making, and you can't fix it, God loves you nevertheless. That his love comes to you in spite of your not deserving it at all. That you don't need to fear in the judgment because he has already made reparations for your sin on the cross. That you can know with certainty, actually, with certainty, that God loves you because of his gospel. Right? Out of fear, we try to get love. We would offer a counterfeit version of love, but true love and, and that kind of fear, mutually exclusive, antithetical to one another. And when you know the love of God in Christ, it casts out that fear. It casts out that way of, of loving, that counterfeit love. When you know the love of God in Christ, then God's love is perfected in you and through you as, as you then begin to, to reflect what God is like, reflect his love and and, uh, and love others in response to his love. So you must have the conviction here. Again, this word, uh, another definition of it. Uh, the conviction, the firmly held belief 
that God loves you, which is what the gospel is all about. It says in verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We've come to know it. We've come to believe it. It's a deeply held conviction of ours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a quote at the beginning of the bulletin. Uh, George Herbert was a 17th century, I think, English poet. Um, yeah, English. It was written in old, old English that has to be updated. But um, a lot of good poems. Uh, one of them is Love Three. Probably wrote a lot of poems about love. Um, uh, this is helpful for us. I think give your attention to it. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, from my first entrance in drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, that I will serve. You must sit down says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Knowing our guilt, knowing the blame that we deserve, God the Son came into the world to bear it, to bear our blame, because we're uncomfortable in the presence of love, and love does not want that to continue. Love himself said, welcome, sit here eat, get to know me, came after us in every way with himself, even to the point of death, gave up his life, love, in the pursuit of, of us, people like us, love gave up his life until we would taste and see that he is good, that he does truly love us, until we would learn what love really is. Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis, said, uh, the, the supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves, say, rather, loved in spite of ourselves. Su supreme happiness in life is the conviction of knowing that you're loved in spite of yourself. And you are. We've come to know it and believe it, that God loves us because of who he is, because he is love, and because of what he's done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our deepest conviction the one that we've always got to be talking about, the one that we remind ourselves and each other on a daily basis, our deepest conviction and proclamation is God loves us. God loves us. The hardest thing to believe. And that is the assurance, then, that we need to conquer our fears, to free us to actually love, not this, this gutted, counterfeit version of love anymore, but the real version that reflects God's love, we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Right? Talking about Jesus. As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. And that's what gives us confidence for the day of judgment. Right? This is talking about the vicarious relationship that we have. 
with Jesus Christ through our union with him. As we put your faith in Christ, the Spirit unites you to Jesus so that everything that's true about him as the perfect human being is now true about you through your faith in him by God's grace. It's how our salvation works. It's how our salvation works through that kind of solidarity, through that kind of unity with Christ. So that's what's, uh, this is, this is how solidarity works. What's true of one party is true of the other party, right? People that you're in solidarity with, you're saying, what's true of you is true of me, and vice versa, right? So on our behalf, he was treated as a sinner because he's in solidarity with us. He said, what's true of you, your sin, your rebellion, your guilt in God's sight, that's going to be true of me, and I'm going to, I'm going to hang on the cross, and I'm going to die for that. So that we could be treated as he is treated, as the one who loves perfectly, who never sinned, never rebelled against his father. He is, Jesus is the beloved son, and that's true of him by his nature. And by grace, through faith in our union with him, it's also true of us. What's true of him is true of us. As he is, so also are we in this world. He lived a perfect life of love, so that's true of us because of our union with him. The holy judge himself suffered the penalty for our cosmic treason, so it's true of us in him that we've already passed through the judgment, already, already gone through it because of our union with Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead, so new and everlasting life is ours, guaranteed, because it's true of him. Right now in heaven, he has a place at the Father's side forever. So we also live as those who are accepted by God and beloved of God and welcome into God's own presence. Jesus has absolute confidence as God's son. You know, a son who knows his father's love for him is a pretty confident person. Jesus has absolute confidence in his father's love for him. So we also have his very confidence to live as God's children taking after our Father, who's in heaven, imitating him. Vicariously as he is right now in heaven, so also are we in this world. And that's, that's the wonder of the gospel. Right? That's the wonder of the gospel, that he would condescend to, to make that true. So whatever's true of him is true of us by, by his grace as a free gift to you. All you have to do is receive that by faith. Right? That's the wonder of the gospel. God loves Jesus Christ, and because of our union with him, God loves us. We've come to know it and believe it. And when his free love makes you truly secure as his child, when it grants you that confidence that your father loves you, you will not only delight in his holy love, you will imitate it. It just will happen. <clears throat> we love, it says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So you can become whole you can be made new in Christ, a new creation. You can be wrenched out of your self-love. You can reflect the image of God. He has loved you so that you may love. God is love, and so can you. Uh, <clears throat> whoever loves God, it says in verse 21, must also love his brother. It's, it's, a, it's a logical necessity. It has to happen. If you know God's love and if you love God in return, it's just going to happen. You've got to love your brother. And again, that takes a lot of expressions depending on the various relationships that we have, right? Um, 
you relate to people differently, all with love, but this love looks different from that love. But so many places in the Bible, everywhere in the Bible, really, our love is sort of generically, the, this love for the brother, this love for the neighbor, it's, it's uh, true spiritual love looks like social justice, social, relational, and justice, the way things are supposed to be, right? The way things are supposed to be in our society, the fulfillment of the law, the law that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a result of knowing God's love for us and loving God. So love is treating others who bear the image of God as those who bear the image of God deserve to be treated. Not as sinners deserve to be treated, but as those who bear the image of God deserve to be treated. And that's our conviction, the quality of showing that we are convinced of our belief in God's love for us. We love because he first loved us, just as Jesus has loved us, right? That commandment Jesus gave us, as I have loved you. This is how you're supposed to love one another. So Isaiah 58 says things like, we're supposed to to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. We're supposed to share our bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into our houses and cover the naked and have real relationships with our fellow human beings. Not hide our faces from our own flesh, but have real relationships of love with all kinds of people. The early church did this as a testimony to God's love in Christ. Uh, in Acts 4, it says there was not a needy person among them, not a needy person among the people in the church, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, um, so we sacrificially give ourselves right, and our possessions and our wealth we sacrificially practice hospitality. Uh, we're merciful. We're generous. Uh, we, we move out in all kinds of relationships to bring restoration, to make things the way that they're supposed to be, right? So one of the things that our denomination is thinking about a lot and that our, our elders have uh, discussed a little bit is, uh, is, is ra- racial reconciliation. Things are not the way they're supposed to be between white people and black people and brown people in this country. Uh, largely because of the lack of love that white people have for others. And we're right there in the middle of that, right? Uh, Racial reconciliation, restoring uh, uh, things to to reflect God's image in all of our relationships. The love that we're supposed to have for each other has to include things like learning how to confess our sins and confess the sins that all of our forefathers had as, as, uh, you know, our denomination started Uh, with people who were racists and wanted to pull away from this denomination in order to maintain segregation in our churches. It's learning how to confess their sins and ours in solidarity with them. It's learning how to recognize all the ways that we don't love people who are a different color from, from we are, right? We don't love them, either by omission or by commission, right? So it's learning how to confess those things to each other, our lack of making any effort to welcome the stranger. Our lack of making any effort to embrace the other with the gospel. Um, And then we repent, we turn around, we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, 
we seek to actually love. That means we're going to have to go out of our way to do it. But that's the kind of thing that we do as people who know what, what it means to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we can find a lot of ways to engage locally. Uh, there are some times where we um, uh, have been involved with uh, immigration counseling services, uh, young women who are, um, uh, and just families who are uh, survivors of, of uh, sex trafficking, human slavery, um, there's a lot of immigrants in the world. There's uh, 60 million global refugees. 60 million global refugees. And, and there's a lot of local people who have the same kind of fear that all these refugees have, right? Fear of being discovered and sent back home. They're living constantly in fear. We hear stories about it at our school where people are warning each other. Now watch out, ICE is at the grocery store they're looking for people, right? People live in fear because they're, they're a stranger, sojourning in a foreign land. And uh, we should know something about the love that they need. And we should offer something of the love that they need, the love of Christ. Uh, by God's grace, we could do something about these things. Small scale, we're not going to fix the world, right? But we can do something about these things. We can love because God first loved us, we can love. We can love our neighbors as ourselves. So I'll close with a quote from Tim Keller. <clears throat> he says that um, believers should be opening their homes and purses to each other, drawing even the poorest and most foreign into their homes and community, giving financial aid, medical treatment, shelter, advocacy, active love, support, and friendship. Jesus did not say that all this was done for the poor was a means of getting salvation, but rather it was a sign that you already had salvation. All right, so God loves you. If you know that, you'll love with a true love. You'll love with a free love. That's our basic conviction. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the root problem in our hearts is uh, the fact that it is hard for us to believe that you would love people like us. It's hard for us to believe that you are a God who is love and that you have loved us through uh, giving your own son for us. We pray that you would teach us constantly, that you would fill our vision with your love, that you would make us truly able to say we have come to know and believe the love that you have for us. Help us to repeat it uh, to ourselves and to each other in this church all the time and help us to, to reflect it in all of our relationships. We pray that you would help us to truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We pray that you would help us to love our neighbor as you have loved us. These things are beyond us. We'd be fooling ourselves to think that we would get anywhere with you and deserve any special treatment because we did this well. Uh, we know that we'll never be perfect in this life, and yet you have loved us anyway and called us into the uh, the glorious family business of loving those who don't deserve it. And so uh, we pray that you would make this real in our hearts through uh, the Spirit's work in us as you fix our eyes on Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.